Hello, and welcome to the Domestic CEO Podcast. Today, a very special guest joins the show, Judith Flanders, an international best-selling author and one of the foremost social historians on the Victorian era is here. First, I do want to thank Audible.com for supporting the Domestic CEO. Audible.com is the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 180,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For our audience members, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. Just go to audiblepodcast.com slash CEO. Judith is a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal, Daily Telegraph, Guardian, Spectator, and the Times Literary Supplement. Judith's newest book is called The Making of Home, and it comes out in October. In the book, Judith traces the evolution of the home across Northern Europe and America from the 16th to the early 20th century. Turns out, the idea of a home has had a remarkable transformation through the years. Judith, thanks so much for joining the Domestic CEO podcast. Nice to be here. To get started, tell us, what got you interested in the topic of the home? Well, I wrote originally a biography of four 19th century women. And after a couple of years of research, I knew everything that they thought, everything that they wrote, where they went, what they did. And somebody said to me, but what did they do all day? And I thought, I have no idea. And that was very embarrassing. So I thought I'd better find out what people did all day. So I started researching domestic life in the 19th century. And I moved on from there. And gradually, as I did more and more on domestic life, the whole idea of domesticity became something I wanted to explore. We've been inundated with cliches about the home for the majority of our lives. There's no place like home. Home is where the heart is. And home, sweet home and all the others we have heard over and over again. But in your book, you say that this is a relatively new phenomenon. People haven't always expected their home to be a place that provides warm and fuzzy feelings. How did people in the past view their role of their home? And when did this change occur? Well, you have to remember that for most of human history, life has been about survival. It hasn't been about comfort. It hasn't been about excess. It hasn't been about anything except getting through to the next day without starving to death. Um, Until the Industrial Revolution, beginning in the 17th, 18th, gaining speed in the 19th centuries, people worked at home. Home was work, work was home. They were interchangeable. So there was no sense that home, even if you were relatively prosperous, was a space where you retired from the world. It was your world. And it's only with the Industrial Revolution when we get the idea that work moves out of the space where your family lives that we get the idea that home is a refuge, home is a place where you can be private. And privacy, of course, is a luxury that most people, you live 10, 12 people in one, two, three rooms. Privacy is not really something you have. And we see. Not merely living patterns, but things that we take for granted. Um, You had to have the invention of things that we don't think had to be invented. The corridor. You can't have privacy if you don't have corridors. But until corridors developed um, in the 16th century, people had to walk through each room to get to the next room. 
So whatever was going on was pretty damn public. So in your opinion, is this shift in how we view our homes a good thing? Or is it harmful to us as a society? I don't think anything is good or bad. I think how we deal with what we have, what each of our era's living patterns are, there are good things, there are bad things. I don't think there is morality inherent in having a corridor or not having a corridor. It's what we do with them. I'm curious, do people in most countries have this view of the home being a safe retreat? Or is it unique to certain parts of the world? Well, I think now in much of the developed world, that is the case. But my idea is that um, in Western Europe and North America, um, in the 17th, 18th centuries, something shifted. And in Europe, the languages of Northwestern Europe, so starting with, with, with Hungary, Germany, Scandinavian countries, moving over to the Netherlands in particular, across to England, and then because of immigration patterns to North America. Those languages all have two words, one house, one home, one meaning the building, one meaning the emotional content of the building. The languages of Southern Europe and Eastern Europe do not have two words. And my idea is that the places that developed two words developed a singular notion of the idea of home from the 16th century. And it's that idea that has spread throughout the world. That is very interesting. If you don't mind, I'd like to shift over to modern day. When did we start filling our houses with knickknacks and stuff? Stuff is really interesting because, if anything, I think of myself as a historian of stuff. I love stuff. But there is the idea that the family construct we know, which is that um, women and men in their 20s work for a period of time, earn a living, marry, set up houses on their own, and then have a family, rather than, say, the marriage pattern of other places where a younger woman marries an older man, moves into his parents' house, so they don't have to acquire stuff. Um, the pattern of Northwestern Europe is the pattern we know today. And my contention is that it is this thing of having to fill your houses for the first time that precipitated not merely our love of stuff, but our love of stuff precipitated the Industrial Revolution. Um, it is, if you like, this notion that home is what drove the great industrialization of the world. And there are other people who will tell you that's garbage. Well, but that's your contention. And it is. You make it very convincingly in your book, which is fascinating. But that's your point, and you make it very convincing in your book. At this point in the 21st century, we appear to have gone the complete opposite. We've gotten to a point where we need a thing for every task that we do around our homes. How did we get to the point where we need a kitchen gadget for every task we do? For example, when did we decide that we needed a separate tool to remove the leaves from a strawberry? Well, I think that specialization is... Um, there are pluses and minuses. Um, as I said before, I think that 
nothing is inherently good or bad. I, I agree that a strawberry holler is perhaps on the bad side. But um, earlier, for instance, um, much earlier, centuries earlier, um, when many people lived in one room, you had multipurpose furniture. So the main building block of your furnishing was a chest. It was storage. You sat on it to eat your meals. You unrolled bedding on it. You slept on it. Gradually, the developments in design of a chest turned it into a cupboard. And so you get this specialization. And I think we can all agree that a cupboard is, on the whole, a more useful item than a chest. And that's because multi-purpose items never do anything particularly well. Then you get the flip side, which is with industrialization, with spare cash, with households becoming places to show off your status, then you get this proliferation of completely useless things, whether it's um, strawberry hullers or raisin pitters or egg separators. And it's interesting, isn't it, that what we particularly focus on are kitchen items, because what you also get is a market that's changing and labor becomes expensive. So technology tries to take up the gap. And instead of having somebody who can beat eggs, somebody invents an egg beater. So what you're witnessing with this change in stuff is a change in the labor market and the women being at home. Which, of course, is a much bigger topic. Well, and, and with the study of home, one of the fascinating things for me was how, as paying work moved out of the house, factory work, or professional life moved out of the house. What was left was the work that previously had been shared, the work of the house, i.e. housework, and it became devalued. It became solely the province of women, and it became something that was less regarded. And that is, too, a fascinating element of the study of home. And looking at the future... What shifts do you see happening in the next 100 years? How do you predict we will view our homes differently in the 22nd century? Well, one of the really, really, really important lessons as a historian is that we're all really terrible at projecting into the future. Um, certainly in my childhood, it was perfectly clear that in 2014, we were all going to be commuting by jetpack and eating um, our meals via pills. And we, can, we know that that happened, sure. So, I, I think as a historian, all I can say is the future is not my period. Um, I have no idea. I have no more idea than you do or the person who is not commuting to work by jetpack because it's the small things. It, the, the wonderful thing about the study of domesticity is it's the tiny things you don't think even have a history, like the history of the corridor. I don't think anyone would have said in the 16th century, I know we're going to invent the corridor. That's the stuff that changed humankind. Amazing. You talk about the dream home in your book. What's the one thing we should all keep in mind as we search for our dream home? Whether that's a physical space or the emotional feeling we get from a home. 
I think there are two elements. I think one element of the dream home is the nostalgic side of life where we have this idea of a time when things were simpler, not necessarily our own times, but historical times when supposedly everyone was happy and the world was a wonderful place. And so historically, we have created these um, imaginary things. I mean, if you told the colonists what colonial houses looked like, I would like to say they'd laugh themselves sick, but they wouldn't because they wouldn't know what you were talking about. And the whole picture of colonial style, um, first of all, until the 1840s, white paint was incredibly expensive and incredibly difficult to produce. So houses weren't painted white for the simple reason there wasn't a lot of white paint around. Um, Lots of things like that. Um, In Britain, the whole Tudor style, you know, the black and white facades, is an invention of the 19th century. Uh, That's not what Tudor buildings looked like. So we've created, first of all, a sort of design dream. And then we add on to that our own ideas. There, There was a wonderful study done, I think in the 50s, I can't quite remember, asking people what they wanted as their dream home. And even when they knew it wasn't what they wanted, they kind of thought it was. They would say, well, I want a Cape Cod house, but it has to be bigger. Um, So by definition, Cape Cods aren't very big, but they wanted it, just not what it was. So it's always this push-pull, and that's the point of dreams. They're not reality. What are some of the most surprising facts you think people will learn in the making of home? The research period for me was just a series of amazing facts. But I think the one that knocked me out the most was the Dutch paintings of the 17th century that we all know, the the paintings of Vermeer uh, and his um, contemporaries. We understand those pictures of blissful domesticity, dream houses indeed, to be representations of Dutch life in the 17th century. It has been well known for decades. Um, Records have survived of um, inventories um, from Dutch households in the 17th century. Very good records. We know absolutely that this is not what these houses looked like. And yet, we are so committed to those beautiful paintings. We can't bear to acknowledge it. Even people who know these facts can scarcely bear. These houses did not have black and white marble floors. They did not have brass chandeliers. Everything we see in those pictures is a product of the imagination. And that just blew me away. The the painters, after all, uh, uh, and the customers knew that this is not what their houses looked like. They were just looking at something pretty. And actually, the the, the pictures mostly are moral stories they tell um, of, of, you know, um, allegories and things to beware of and, you know, stories of evil women seducing men off the paths of virtue. You know how we do that all the time. Um, they knew it wasn't a depiction of reality. It's just us who don't know that. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Judith. 
I encourage all of you to pick up her book, The Making of Home. You can learn more about Judith and all of her fascinating books at judithflandersbooks.com. Thanks again to audible.com for supporting this episode. Audiobooks are great to listen to when you're driving across town, stuck in traffic, on the subway or bus, or doing chores around the house. They're a great way to pass the time without turning on the TV. For our audience members, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you the chance to try out their service. If you'd like, you can check out one of Judith Flanders' other books, The Invention of Murder, How the Victorians Reveled in Death and Detection and Created Modern Crime. I'm a huge fan of modern crime shows and books, so this is one that I'm definitely going to check out. It talks about how 19th century Britain had a fascination with good quality murder. Not necessarily the quantity, but the quality of the crimes. This was an era of penny bloods, early crime fiction, and melodrama for the masses. If you'd like to check it out, you can do that for free by going to audiblepodcast.com slash CEO. Until next time, I'm the Domestic CEO, helping you love your home.